Now, most, uh, any Sunday of my childhood, with very, very, very few exceptions, if you were looking for me, and I'm not sure why you would be, but if you were looking for me, you would have found me at the Meldrum Missionary Baptist Church. Now, this is a terrible picture. It looks a little better up there than it does here, but you got to keep in mind, this was way back when, way down in Bell County, and this is the highest resolution photo that I could come up with uh, of where I grew up. And this is the church that I grew up in. This, this was the church of my parents. This was the church of my grandparents, my great-grandparents and my great-great-grandparents. So this is where I grew up. When, when my mom had me, this is where she took me as an infant. I was a toddler there. I was a kid there. And I stayed in that church until I was 16 years old. So this is where I came to faith uh, at 16. Uh, now, if, if you really force my hand, I believe that I came to faith earlier than 16, but at 16 is when I finally, you know, dotted the I's and crossed the T and walked the aisle because back then and back there, it wasn't official until you walked the aisle. So I, I did the whole aisle thing, walked forward just as I am, did all that, but I believed already. I, I, I believed that I was in already, but at 16, I, I did the official thing and I, I came forward and did that. And then the next week I was, I was baptized. Uh, and when I think back on where I came from, I, I'm so filled with gratitude because I'll never outgrow the influence of, of that place and those people and the impact they made in my life. And I'm always going to be grateful uh, for that place and for those people. But to give you a little uh, lesson about where I came from and to tell you about how things were and see maybe if it's a little bit of your story as well. Uh, back there, uh, church started at 11 a.m. sharp. I mean, matter of fact, every church that I knew of that was a church at all started at 11 a.m. sharp. I mean, you couldn't be a real church and not start at 11 a.m. sharp. We couldn't understand why the Presbyterians did 945 or 1015 or the Methodist 1030. It was like, you know, if you're a real church, you are starting at 11 a.m. Because apparently once upon a time, heaven made a decree that if you're going to have church, it's got to be at 11 a.m. Because that's the time slot that's better than, you know, all the other time slots. So every church I knew started at 11 a.m. And I don't know why that is. I guess that uh, practically it wasn't too late in the day that it kind of ruined your day and it wasn't too early that you couldn't sleep in. So it was kind of like baby bear's porridge. You know, it was kind of right there in the middle. But before the main event at 11 a.m., because 11 a.m. Was the, was the main event, before the main event, there was actually another event prior to the main event, prior to Sunday morning worship service at 11 a.m., and before the main event, there was an event that was reserved for the dedicated. There was another event before the main event that was reserved for the committed, the studious, uh, for the people who really were saved and truly loved Jesus. And to come to the event before the main event meant that you were serious about your faith. It meant that you weren't playing around when it came to your faith. And this event that happened before the main event happened at 10 a.m. And how many of y'all can tell me what that event was called? Sunday school, of course it was. And many of you, you went there, you were part of it. So the event before the main event was Sunday school. And again, like I said, this was reserved for the most dedicated, the most, anybody could go to the 11 o'clock main event. But if you were dedicated, you came to Sunday school. If you were committed, you came to Sunday school. If you were studious of the scripture, you came to Sunday school. If you were really saved and not faking saved, you came to Sunday school. And you truly loved Jesus. How did you know? Because you came to Sunday school. And everybody who fit that description or wanted to fit that description, they, they came to Sunday school. And of course, they made their children come alongside of them. And that, that was me. I would rather slept in when I was a kid, but my parents said, nope, you're going to Sunday school. And, and eventually I learned to love it, but at first, I I was like Sunday school. I think if they would have let me speak into 
the process back then. I could have helped. Uh, I think Sunday school could have used a real rebranding. I, I think we could have called it anything but Sunday school because who wants school intruding in on their Sunday? I mean, it just seems, it just doesn't seem Christian. I mean, to put school in Sunday and it just didn't seem fun. You know, maybe we could have called it, you know, you know, church tailgating at 10 a.m. Uh, maybe we could have called it like pre-gaming before the 11 a.m. main event. I don't know, but we could have come up with something better than Sunday school. But when you showed up for Sunday school, we would do it this way at my church. Everybody would walk into the sanctuary and everybody would have a seat. And of course, this is after you walk through all the deacons smoking on the front porch. And, and so you walk through that cloud of smoke, came into the church, you sat down and there would be someone who would sing a song, not two songs, uh, but one song, always one song, followed by a devotion that normally never lasted longer than five minutes. And at the end of the devotion, uh, whoever uh, was leading the devotion that morning, uh, they would pray and then they would dismiss everybody to go to their classes. And so by class, you had to go out the back doors of the auditorium and then you took an immediate ride and you went downstairs into the basement because every church that was a real church had a basement. I mean, I don't even know if you could have been a church without a basement. Every church, you know, I ever attended is like, there's always a basement in churches, but I guess there's probably a good reason why, but I, I never, no one's ever explained it to me. But you would go downstairs and, and the sheetrock would eventually transition to concrete block that was painted off white. And then those concrete blocks formed the hallway that went down the middle of the basement. And there were rooms on both sides of that hallway. Uh, and those rooms were classes. And my class was the first room on the left. Uh, the first teachers that I remember having in Sunday school was Miss Bernice and Miss Kathy. And we would come in and we would give our offerings and then they would ask, okay, who brought your Bible? And I'd raise my hand and then all the people who had their hands up would look down their noses at the people who didn't bring their Bible. And so Sunday school was great training for how many of us live as adults. I mean, we felt good about ourselves, looked down on others. And, you know, it was just kind of a good place to learn those things. And, you know, who brought their Bible? And it's like, yeah, I brought my Bible. And then, then the lesson would start. And we would sit around tables and we would listen. And sometimes our teacher would use felt board. How many of y'all remember felt boards? You know, it's like, here's little bitty David and here's big Goliath. And they would tell the story or here's Esau and here's Jacob and look how hairy Esau is, you know. And sometimes, you know, we would use uh, color, you know, like color pictures, like full color pictures. And the teacher would talk through and tell the story. And then on the rare occasion, there would actually be costumes and we would just act it out. And that was all always uh, really cool. But I learned to love Sunday school. I mean, I loved going to Sunday school. Matter of fact, here's a picture of one of my first Sunday school classes. I think I've showed it to you before, but uh, obviously I'm the one in the tie because I've dressed that way since I was in a crib. Uh, I had the dinner, you know, salad bowl haircut. That uh, was really, really in back then. And this is, this is the people that I went to class with. I remember the names of all of them. That was Renee and Heather and Brent and Adra and Tasha and David. And so most every week we would, we would kind of meet in that Sunday school class and, and we would listen to our teachers. And Sunday school was the place where I memorized all the books of the Bible. You know, all 66 books of the Bible, 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 books of the New Testament. You know, it's where I memorized, you know, the Kings. And, you know, I, in Sunday school, I got really, really good at Bible trivia. I mean, if you were playing Bible trivia, you wanted me on your, I was your first draft pick in Bible trivia. And, and that was all about Sunday school. I learned all the Sunday school anthems, you know, 
Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, or Jesus loves all the little children, all the children of the world, red, brown, yellow, black, and white, they're all precious in his sight, or I've got joy, 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 joy down in my heart, where? Down in my heart, where? Down in my heart, you know, or the B-I-B-L-E, you know, that's the only book for me, I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E, I got all of the anthems down, I mean, they're still down in there, you know, it's like, oh yeah, I, I, I'll never forget those, and that was Sunday school, I mean, it was wonderful, it was great. And for many of us, me specifically, uh, but maybe true for you, one of the first places that we were introduced to the scriptures were Sunday school. And of course we were introduced to the New Testament. Of course we were told about Jesus, Jesus born of a virgin in Bethlehem and Jesus who performed miracles and he gave blinded eyes sight and deaf ears hearing and even he raised some people from the dead and, and we were told about how he took uh, loaves and fishes and fed thousands of people and, and all of those stories were amazing and how for God so loved the world that he gave his only son and whoever would believe upon him would not perish but have everlasting life and, and we were told stories about the cross and how Jesus died for our sins and how Jesus was buried and raised from the dead. So the New Testament, absolutely, of course, you would expect the New Testament to show up in Sunday school, but it was in Sunday school that many of us were first introduced and first taught the first part of our English Bibles, the part that we call the Old Testament. We were taught the Old Testament first, many of us, if you didn't grow up in church, this is not your story and you'll understand why some of us are still you know, in therapy because uh, of some of the things that we just couldn't get over and couldn't get past. But, but we were introduced to the Old Testament as children. We were introduced to the part of the Bible which also happens to be the most troubling, perplexing, confusing, disturbing, head-scratching part of the Bible. And the Old Testament, if we're just honest, it's difficult for a lot of adults. And it certainly would have been difficult for us to fully understand as children. So back in you know, Sunday school, I was introduced to all the quintessential stories of the Old Testament. You know, Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Noah's Ark and David and Goliath and Abraham and Isaac and you know, Gideon. And it just goes on and on and on. All of those stories I was told about. And you were too, you remember them. You remember Adam and Eve and you remember Cain and Abel and Noah's Ark and remember the flood and Abraham and Isaac and David and Goliath. And you've got all of that stuff. But here's the thing, my Sunday school teacher did what all good Sunday school teachers do. They told me the stories of the Old Testament in a way that was crafted and in a way that was engineered for children. And that's what they were supposed to do. That was the only thing that they could do. Which may explain why many of us adults who followed Jesus and were part of the church, why many of us adults look back to some of the stories in the Old Testament and maybe even the Old Testament at large and we look back and it just doesn't feel relevant to us. We don't feel comfortable reading it. We, we don't feel like we understand it. Uh, even though there's a powerful nostalgia to all of those stories, we're just not quite sure what to do with them. We were told those stories in a way that was crafted and engineered for children, and then we grew up and we just didn't know what to do with those stories as adults. And if we're just being honest, and if I can be honest, a little bit of my own personal story, the stories that once upon a time I found riveting in the Old Testament as an adult, it became troubling to me. Uh, stories that once upon a time entertained me, it, it confused me later on in life or even haunted me in some ways. And let's just be honest, many of you, you grew up in church all of your life and to hear the stories of the Old Testament, it's like, yeah, what else you got? Let's talk about something else. I know those stories. And you don't think anything about it. 
And you can listen to those stories, hear somebody else talk about those stories, and you just don't think a second thing about it. But the world has changed drastically in the last 50 years. And for a lot of people, matter of fact, some who are very close friends of mine, some of their biggest objections to faith are pulled out of the Old Testament. And some of the reasons why some folks find believing and following Jesus to be so difficult is because of what they have read as adults or what they have read as college students or what they read as a teenager in the Old Testament. And so what you don't think a second think about, what some of us don't think a second think about, for many of the people that you work with, that you meet, maybe for your children or your grandchildren, the Old Testament may become an obstacle to faith. So it's important for us to know how to think about the Old Testament and to know how to read the Old Testament because as children, we couldn't have possibly known how disturbing and how unsettling some of those stories actually were. I mean, we just showed up to Sunday school and we colored pictures like this. Here's Adam and Eve. And there's the tree, the forbidden tree, and there's the, there's the snake, the talking snake. And for some of you, talking snake, you've not thought a second thing about that. But some people here, talking snake? Oh yeah, talking snake. I mean, who's not heard of a talking snake? And, and so you just color the talking snake, you know, as a kid. And then, you know, you have, you know, two half naked adults, which is completely normal for children to color. And, and luckily they were always hiding behind shrubbery. Thank God for the shrubbery. And, and so there we were in Sunday school and we were coloring and it's like, hey, we didn't think a thing about it. Teachers didn't think a thing about it. And, and so there it is, the story of Adam and Eve. And it's like, man. And then we move on to other great stories, stories about, you know, Father Abraham, you know, Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, Father Abraham, the father of faith. And, you know, then we would color, you know, really sweet stories with him and his son, Isaac. You know, it's like, oh, how precious. It's like, how sweet, a father and son having an intimate moment. I mean, it's like, it's like, how disturbing. I mean, and coloring this as children, I mean, if you drove by today and saw this going on in somebody's backyard, you are not assuming hero of faith. You are calling 911. It's like, you're not gonna believe what I'm paying attention to out here. And so, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, we were told those stories, but, but we, had a, we had a childhood framework, a childhood set of ears and a childhood brain. And it's just like, oh, we could have possibly known the full story. Of course, they didn't tell us about Father Abraham having a problem with telling the truth, that he, he was quite the liar. And they certainly didn't tell us about the times that he pimped out his wife to a group of men to save his own skin. And it's like, well, I mean, you couldn't tell that to children. And some of you are like, what? Abraham did what? It's like, yeah, these stories are just so disturbing and unsettling. And, and, and sometimes it's like, oh my gosh, what do we do with it? And then there's, you know, Cain and Abel. And of course, you know, children coloring corpses who've been recently murdered by their brother. I mean, it's like, yeah, no big deal. That's that sibling rivalry, you know, brothers will be brothers. It's like, what? You know, and it's like part of the story. And it's just how we grew up. But one of my favorites, you know, was, was Joseph. And Joseph was loved by his father more than his father loved his other brothers, which always works out well for families. But he was the favorite son. Some of y'all know what it's like to be the favorite son. Some of y'all know what it's not like to be the favorite person in the family. And so because Jacob loved Joseph so much, he gave him a coat of many colors so that he would be a constant reminder that he was the most loved among his brothers. That's not the real reason he did it, but that's ultimately what it became. And so we come in and boy, look at that. I mean, it's like David Cassidy. I mean, it's like Joseph. 
Uh, if you've seen recent pictures, it's kind of like Harry Styles. I mean, it's like, you know, some of, it's like what goes around, they say comes back around fashion wise. And it is, I mean, and there he is. And we would just paint those pictures and the family dysfunction, the family abuse, the family dishonesty and all of that stuff that was part of that story. It's like, we just couldn't possibly take it in as children. And then there's Solomon. That's Solomon, he's taking a nap. So why in the world is he taking a nap? I don't know, maybe because he had 700 wives. Uh, it takes a lot out of a man. 900 concubines, it's like, what in the world? It's like, he's the wisest man. They tell us the stories about, he's the wisest man in the whole world and God gave him all this wisdom. And then you got married and you're thinking, it's all that I can do. As wonderful as she is, perfect matter of fact, as she is, I think I can only deal with one. How, how, Tron 700, it's like, no wonder the man had no energy. I mean, I imagine he slept most of the time, but they didn't tell us about, you know, all of that. They didn't tell us about the book that he wrote, you know, the Song of Solomon with euphemisms like, I'm going to, you know, graze among your lilies. It's like, what? Or, you know, his love was like a young stallion, his arms like golden rods, you know, her chest like apples. And it's like, you know, and it's like, and some of you are like, what are you possibly talking? It's in the Bible. Uh, matter of fact, some men today, I just have a feeling men are gonna go home today, blow off the dust off their Bible and start in the Song of Solomon. It's like, honey, I found a verse. Look at this, I found a verse. You know, can we study this? You know, but anyway, I mean, it's like, we couldn't possibly have known the whole story. We could have handled as children. Some of you are having difficulty handling it right now. But as children, those stories seemed to be just that story, stories that were bigger than life. But then we became adults. And we're not quite sure what to do with them. And that's a tragedy because the Old Testament book, the Old Testament part of this book are full of stories that reflect an ancient time that in many ways reflect our current set of choices and situations and culture that in many ways it reflects our own modern lives. And that's part of the beauty of the Old Testament that it reflects part of the challenges and the excruciating choices that all of us face in some degree or the other, that we can find those in this ancient book called the Old Testament. We find things like insecurity. Lots of people struggle with insecurity. The insecurity is all throughout the book of the Old Testament. So much of the dysfunction of men and women and their families were, was tied to insecurity or infertility. I mean, how many people have you known to struggle with infertility? Infertility is a reoccurring theme throughout the Old Testament. Racism. Our world's talking a lot about racism. Racism is littered throughout the Old Testament books. Uh, things like jealousy among siblings and jealousy in family and injustice and, you know, con men and, you know, family dysfunctions and family abuse and, you know, bad things that are happening to good people and people who are walking through dark places trying to grapple with who is God and what is God like and trying to figure out life. And there's parents who are heartbroken by sons and daughters. Basically anything that you can come up with that you can face in life, you're gonna find it in the raw reality of the Old Testament because the Old Testament is an ancient document that maintains modern relevance. It's an ancient document of an ancient people with ancient frameworks and ancient values and an ancient worldview but yet it maintains a modern relevance in a way that is just quite simply amazing. So in this series, we're gonna go back all summer long and we're gonna revisit and rethink and reimagine many of these stories that we were first introduced to as children. But we're gonna tell those stories throughout this series for adults. We're gonna retell those stories that we first heard as children, but we're gonna retell them 
for adult ears and adult minds and adult experiences and an adult stage of life. And as we do that, today my job is to just kind of lay the groundwork for the rest of this series. So today is not really a sermon, it's just a big introduction to this series. And I just want to give you some things to think about because when you talk to, you know, Jesus followers and you really encourage them, hey, you should read the Old Testament. I know that one of the things that I hear often is why should I even spend time in the Old Testament? Because I'm more of a New Testament person. I kind of like the red letter, kind of like the letters of Paul, really like the letters of Peter. I just I love the Gospels. You know, why, why even bother with the Old Testament when the New Testament, it, it's, just, it's just so good. And the reason why we should care about the Old Testament, the reason that we should be interested in the Old Testament is Jesus because, and I hope you know this, and I want to remind you this as often as I can, without Jesus, we wouldn't have the New Testament. And without Jesus, we wouldn't care about the Old Testament. Without Jesus, without his death, his burial, and his resurrection, we wouldn't have the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We wouldn't have the letters of Paul. We wouldn't have the letters of Peter or the letters of John. The only reason that those guys wrote about Jesus, it's not because of what he taught, and it's not because he suffered and he died. Lots of people taught lots of things and lots of people in those days suffered and died. But the reason that they wrote about Jesus is because the one who suffered and died was raised from the dead. And because he was raised from the dead, they documented it, they wrote it down, and it ultimately became what we call the New Testament. And without Jesus, we don't have a New Testament. And without Jesus, we wouldn't even care about the Old Testament. So our interest in the Old Testament scriptures begins with Jesus. And the reason that we take the Old Testament seriously as Christians is because Jesus took the Old Testament seriously. You'll find in the gospels, Jesus over and over again, referring to the Old Testament, referring to people in the Old Testament, events in the Old Testament, quoting verses from the Old Testament, indirectly referencing verses and chapters and storylines out of the Old Testament. Jesus took the Old Testament seriously. And because we believe that Jesus died and was buried and was raised from the dead, because we take Jesus seriously. If Jesus took the Old Testament seriously, then we have to take the Old Testament seriously as well. Now, when Jesus showed up into this world, he showed up into a story that was already in progress, a story that began in Genesis. The first five books of the Old Testament are referred to the Pentateuch, which is, is, you know, for five, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In Genesis, the book of origins, we, we find an account of creation, and it's not so much intended to give us a scientific accounting of how the world was created. It, it is there to remind us that God created the world, that something came out of nothing and God is responsible for it. So Genesis is not trying to make a scientific claim of any proportion. It is there to tell us God created the world. He is the author of all things, time and space. And so you have the story of Genesis and you have the origin, origins of family and sin and injustice and racism and violence. And there's an explanation from the very beginning about why the world is the way that it is today. When we look around and we wonder, why is the world the way it is today? We find the explanation written in the book of Genesis and then the book of Exodus. You know, a group of people 
uh, who had become the victims of injustice were rescued by Moses and taken out of the land of Egypt. And it's that great story. And then, you know, the books of their laws and all the peculiar and weird and strange laws that they had about what you could eat and what you could wear and what you could plant and how you were supposed to do it. And all of those things are found in the first five books, the books of Moses. And then, you know, the books of wisdom and, and the books of the prophets. And, and all of those were telling a story. And Jesus stepped into the middle of that story. Jesus, when he was born, he was born into a Jewish history, a Jewish heritage, a Jewish value system, Jewish traditions, culture, worldview, religion. Jesus, he was born right in the middle of all of that. And the Jewish scriptures were the backstory to Jesus showing up here on this planet. Because here in the Old Testament, you know, and we get hung up on the parts and we miss the point. We get hung up on the parts that make us scratch our head and we wonder why in the world or how and I don't even know and that doesn't make any sense to me and we get kind of hung up on that and we miss the point of the story. And the point of the story helps us make sense of the parts of the story. But the point of the story is that God, he pursued a rebel race of people like you and me. That humanity had rebelled against God and had ran away, but God is running after us, not to pay us back, but to win us back. And the Old Testament is the story of God making his way to you, God making his way to me, God making his way to the world. It's the story of God trying to win his family back. It's the story of God making a promise to Abraham. Abraham, you're gonna have a son, and one day your son's gonna have a son, and one day in a future generation, one of your future sons is gonna be born, and the whole world is going to be blessed because of it. And that's what the Old Testament is. It's about God's promise to send a savior. And then there's all of this history. There's all of these windows that we look into to time and places in a day that was long, long ago. And we look into those little portions of history. And even though there's parts of those stories, it's, you know, a bit confusing. And it's like, you know, what's the point of this? The overarching story is that God made a promise and God intends on keeping it. That's the Old Testament. And the Old Testament was the book that Jesus carried. No, they didn't really carry it, but if there were Bibles to carry in Jesus's day, that was the Bible that Jesus loved. That was the Bible that Jesus read. Uh, just so that you're not confused because you'd be, be surprised maybe about the people who believe this. Jesus did not carry the 1611 King James Version Bible around. Uh, when Jesus was here, the New Testament hadn't even been written yet. And the Bible that Jesus loved and read and the Bible that Jesus believed in was the Old Testament Jewish scriptures. Because throughout the Old Testament Jewish scriptures, there was this whisper. There was this this enduring whisper in every generation of God saying one day a savior is coming, so don't miss it. And that was the Old Testament. And we see that promise, it kind of comes and goes throughout generations and it plays out in different places in different eras with different things going on in the world, but it's still the whisper if someone's coming, don't miss it. And then Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up and he upsets all the status quo of the temple and the empire. He started talking about he was God. He started claiming the ability to forgive sin. He spoke as though he had always existed. He said things like me and the father are one. He said the Old Testament, it speaks of me, it points to me and one day I will judge the world. And because of all of this stuff that Jesus said and because he befriended the unholy and the unrighteous and the unwanted and the unloved, because he was a friend of sinners and he invited them into the kingdom of God, they killed him. They killed him, they crucified him. And when Jesus said on Good Friday, it is finished, his first disciples believed him. 
And they walked away that day without faith, without hope, without a savior. And that was Friday. And for all of Jesus's first followers, this is so important, for all of Jesus's first followers, the Old Testament had been what the Old Testament had always been. A promise of a savior to come. And Jesus obviously wasn't that savior because he was now dead. But then on Sunday, when Jesus was raised from the dead, it changed everything immediately and everything dramatically. And then all of a sudden, in just a matter of a few days, the first disciples, the first leaders of the church began to go back and revisit and reread and reimagine the Old Testament from a brand new perspective. And on the day of Pentecost, the Christian, you know, the first sermon preached by Christians on the day of Pentecost, Peter, fisherman from Galilee, not an Old Testament scholar, but he stands up and on the day of Pentecost, this is what he says. He makes a case for Jesus out of the Old Testament. This is what he said. He said, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all of the prophets saying that this Messiah, his Messiah would suffer. So all of a sudden, Peter and the first Christians began to go back and look at the Jewish scriptures and they said, you know what? It is now clear to us. It is clear to us on this side of the resurrection that the prophets had told us all along that this very thing that has happened would happen. And he goes on, he says, indeed, beginning with Samuel, and all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And Peter said, listen, our Jewish scriptures written over centuries, the prophets were always speaking about what we have seen play out in just the last few days. The prophets were pointing to a Messiah who would come and a Messiah who would suffer and a Messiah who would be raised from the dead. And Peter, he went back to the Old Testament and said, hey, this was here all along. We just couldn't see it on that side of the resurrection. But on this side of the resurrection, we look at the scriptures in an altogether different way. Later on, he would say, all the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins in his name. And he says, it was there all along. The Old Testament had been pointing to Jesus all along and it became clear to them on the other side of the resurrection. Just not Peter, but the apostle Paul who hated Christians and then he became one. He was an Old Testament scholar. He, he was highly educated, one of the most highly educated men of his day. And this, this was something that he did as well. He used the Old Testament to point people to Jesus. In Acts 17, it says, as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. What scriptures? The Old Testament. Explaining and proving. So he's making a case, he's making a defense that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. Now, I don't know what all Paul said, but I imagine that Paul could have started with the promise that God made in the Garden of Eden, when he promised a savior would come. And that was when we found the first promise of the Messiah was in Genesis three. Right on the hills of man's sin, God made a promise to redeem man's sin. And maybe Paul opened up the Old Testament scriptures and said God promised that day that a savior would be born, that would be the seed of the woman, that a savior would come and would be a descendant of Seth, one of the sons of Adam and Eve, that a savior would come and be a descendant of Japheth, one of the sons of Noah, 
that the Savior would one day come and he would be a descendant of Abraham and be a descendant of Isaac and be a descendant of Jacob, that he would come out of the tribe of Judah, that he would be born through the line of Jesse, that he would emerge up out of the house of David, that he would be born in Bethlehem, that his ministry would begin in Galilee, that on one faithful day he would ride in Jerusalem riding on a donkey, that he would be betrayed by a close friend for silver. Maybe he read to them all of those prophecies that were recorded hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus ever showed up to point them in the direction of Jesus. Maybe he just opened up to Isaiah 53, a passage that was written 500 years before Jesus ever showed up. The Dead Sea Scrolls testified to the validity of Isaiah 53 and other passages in the Old Testament of what we have in our English Bibles is what was written originally. That there was one who would come, a suffering servant, who would be wounded and bruised and pierced for our transgressions and for our sins. That there would be this future suffering servant that God in some way would lay upon him the sins of us all. That he would be led to the slaughter as a lamb, but yet he would not open up his mouth. And maybe he just read it from Isaiah 53 and said, who does that sound like? And he would point them in the direction of Jesus. He would use the Old Testament, he would say this, Jesus, I am proclaiming to you, is the Messiah, according to the Apostle Paul. Because Paul and Peter and the other Christians could no longer read the Old Testament the same way. They were looking at the Old Testament through the lens of an empty tomb, through the reality of a resurrected Savior. And then as Gentiles, non-Jewish people, as Gentiles began to be saved, non-Jewish people, as non-Jewish people began to embrace a Jewish savior, guess what they got interested in? The Jewish scriptures. And they opened up the Jewish scriptures and you know what they found? They found Jesus. They found that the Old Testament had been pointing towards him, whispering about him, promising his arrival for centuries. And now it was clear what the scriptures had been talking about all along. The message of the prophets became the message of the apostles, and that is a big deal. After the resurrection, things that didn't used to make sense all of a sudden made sense. It jumped off the page. When the first Christians would turn back to the, to the books of the law, all of a sudden they saw Jesus in all of those sacrifices. The Jewish people had a sacrifice for everything in order for God to forgive their sin, for God to cover their sin, to take their sins away. And all of a sudden they looked at all of those sacrifices and they saw Jesus who would be the one final sacrifice for sin that would take away all the sins of the world. They looked at the high priest who would take the blood of that sacrifice in and apply it on the mercy seat. And they saw Jesus, our great high priest, who has passed into the heaven, who is seated at the right hand of God, who is our anchor beyond the veil, who is the assurance of our salvation, the one who was both the sacrifice and our priest. They looked at all of those crazy laws that no one could possibly be expected to obey all of them. And they looked at all of those laws and they realized that only one could be the law keeper, that Jesus was the one perfect one who kept all of the law, to die for those who had broken the law so that they could be forgiven of their law breaking. All of a sudden, it all made sense to them and they looked back and they could see Jesus standing in the shadows throughout the Old Testament. Does it change the oddness of some of those passages? Does it change the weirdness of some of those things? No, but once you understand the overarching story, the point of the story, all of a sudden, it helps us to be able to filter the parts of the story that we're uncomfortable with a little bit differently. All of a sudden, the story of Abraham and Isaac, it meant something different. 
When, when Abraham looks at his son Isaac and says, Dad, let's go camping. And Isaac says, okay, Dad, let's go camping. And he says, hey, look, we got the wood and we got everything we need for the fire and we got the tent, but where's the lamb? And Abraham said, don't you worry, son, because God himself will provide the lamb. And then just as Abraham was ready to do the unthinkable, the unconscionable, all of a sudden God stayed his hand. And it says that God provided a ram that day. Not a lamb, but a ram because two or so thousand years later, John the Baptist will lift up his voice and say, behold the lamb of God that has come to take away the sins of the world. And all of a sudden, the story of Abraham and Isaac meant something different. They read the story of Noah building an ark to save his family from future judgment. And all of a sudden they could see a shadow of Jesus who would build an ark for his people and invite them in to flee from the judgment to come. All of a sudden, all of it meant something different because they understood what the story was all about, that humanity had rebelled against God and all the while God was working his way back to win his family back. You say, where did they get this? How did they know to do this? Well, they got it from Jesus because Jesus after the resurrection, he met a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus and it says, he said to them, how foolish are you and how slow to believe are you to believe all the prophets? Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then it says, Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's all 39 books, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Because without Jesus, without his resurrection, we wouldn't have the New Testament. And without Jesus, we wouldn't care about the Old Testament. So how do we read it? How do we make sense of it? And this is where I leave it. And this is where we pick up next week. How do, how do we read these stories? How are we supposed to process them? And Paul gives us some advice. He said, all scripture, and he's talking about the Old Testament, is inspired by God and it's useful. It's profitable, it's valuable to teach us what is true, to help us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and it teaches us to do what is right. Paul says, listen, don't ever doubt that the Old Testament is valuable, that it's useful. Weird, yes, but it's still profitable. Strange at parts, yes, but still valuable. He says, it is inspired by God. It gives you answers to some of life's biggest questions like, where did I come from? Who am I? Why am I here? How should I live and where am I going? We find, he says, all of those questions in the Old Testament, all of those questions begin to be given to us and it progressively becomes more clear to us right up until Jesus comes and make it, makes it crystal clear. He says, it's inspired by God, which means it has authority. He says, because without some authority, we just live our lives ever how we wanna live our lives. We make up our own sense of morality. We make up our own definitions of what's right and what's wrong. But if God has authority and if his scripture finds its source in him, then the scripture has authority. And I don't have the authority to do what I wanna to do to live the way that I want to live because that's what happens. Without the authority of God in my life or your life, we just end up having anarchy. We just do what we wanna do with who we wanna do it as much as we wanna do it because there's no standard, there's no right, there's no wrong. It's just whatever we think, it's however we feel. Authority means that I submit even when I don't like it. And there's some things I don't like. Authority means that I submit even though I don't understand it. And there's some things I don't understand. And it means that I surrender and I submit to it even when there's some things that I don't want to be true. I hope it's not that way. 
But if there's authority, I can either reject it or submit to us. He says, God will teach us how to live our lives better in the Old Testament. It'll show us what's right, what's wrong, how to get right, how to stay right. We'll learn that obedience isn't a matter of agreement or understanding, it's a matter of love and trust. Because in the Old Testament, we find a group of people figuring out how to love God, figuring out how to trust God, trying to make sense of it all. It's messy, it's muddy, it's foggy, but it's the chronicle of a people trying to figure it out. And we go back and we're better for it. Paul said such things, they were written in the scriptures long ago to teach us. And the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promise to be fulfilled. So in the next few weeks, as we read the Old Testament and revisit some of these stories, it should always teach us something. It should always leave us with endurance, with a sense of encouragement, and with hope. And Paul says, when you read the Old Testament, if you don't come away with endurance, if you don't come away with encouragement, and if you don't come away with hope, you've not read it right. You've not read it correctly. You've not interpreted it correctly. He says, it's all in there. And if you read it through the perspective of an empty tomb, you're gonna be better for it. You're gonna be encouraged by it. You're gonna be stronger because of it. And you're gonna be left with hope. And that's where we're gonna pick it up next week. Stories of endurance, stories of encouragement, stories of hope. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you that an empty tomb not only changes the way that we read the scriptures, it changes the way that we see each other. It changes the way that we see God. It changes the way that we see life. It changes everything. And Father, if the tomb is empty, and I believe it is, if the tomb is empty, it means we have some serious questions to be asking of ourselves. And if we've never placed our faith in Christ, and we have no explanation for an empty tomb, Lord, I pray that those who've not made up their mind about Jesus, those who may have objections, those who have questions, I pray that maybe throughout this series, God, you would just speak into their hearts. Remind us, God, that as we read these stories, we are a people predisposed to peace and to joy and hope because if for no other reason, the tomb is empty. Jesus, who died for our sins, has been raised from the dead. Thank you for that truth that changes everything in Jesus' name. And everybody said.